Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. Well, today, Brett and I are joined with two longtime friends of the show, Theodora Lau and Bradley Limer, founders of Unconventional Ventures. Theo and Bradley both have really diverse backgrounds. Theo is a public speaker, a writer, and an advisor focused on improving financial health and well-being. And Bradley speaks and writes about banking and tech. He's the former head of innovation at Banco Santander. And Theo and Brad have a new book they've just released, Beyond Good, How Technology is Leading a Purpose-Driven business revolutions. Well, welcome back to the show, guys. Yeah, it's great wow. to have you guys back on. Yeah. It feels like a long time between drinks, as we say in Australia. <laughs> it does indeed. It has so, been a long time. Yeah. Tell and us about the book. And, drinks as well. Sorry, yeah, JP. Yeah, it's okay. I just want to hear about the book. So why did you write this? What, what's the idea behind it? Well, um, the, the joke would be because we love to punish ourselves. Um, so we had nothing else better to do during the pandemic than to write the book. <laughs> but the reality of it is, um, as Brett will say, um, he convinced me to write it at first, actually, because he said, well, we've been writing every week, so might as well put the book together. Um, we started working on the book before the pandemic, before um, we all went into shutdown. And... Um, the, the premise of the book is is about Beyond Good, and, and that was kudos to Brett, um, his idea that came up with the title. It, it's about how we can do more um, than what we already are doing. How can we broaden our mind to include more people in, in what we do and how we do things? Um, and nothing has highlighted this more than the pandemic, than what we have gotten through in the past 12 months as to the digital divide that we have in our society, the haves and have-nots, the children that are not able to be part of virtual education because they lack internet access, or the workers, the frontline workers, essential workers, that are out there protecting us, doing things so that we can all stay at home and, and talk on the podcast, right? And so if, if we take a step back and look at what we have gone through collectively as a society, the question then becomes, as we move towards recovery, as we start thinking about how can we put our pieces back together, the question becomes, how can we do it? more in a way that can bring more people back into the society? How can we do it more equitably? I would just add that, you know, the the original premise of the book was to look at business models in financial services and beyond and how technology is changing it and how technology enables us to really, you know, serve more people's needs in a broader way. And, and that's a very general statement. But we were sort of playing off this idea that, you know, Good to Great by Jim Collins was a book that still sells 300,000 copies a year. And it's a 20 some odd year old book. And it's sort of central thesis is around the 
hedgehog concept and you know this idea that you build a moat you do what you do best you get the you know best people in the in the right seat and you just go and you throw gas on a business and you grow and you grow and you grow and it's about profitability at the center and it's about maximizing profitability well in response to that you know why can't we have more businesses that really think about the the common good right so to go beyond great to me is every company doing well every community doing well and society in general doing well and and that's exactly who we highlight in this book across more than 100 different businesses that are changing the business models you know in financial services and insurance and way beyond that and it's just the beginning so um i i love that i wanted to follow up because i think if you look at um, the system we have um, from a perspective of incentives, market incentives in particular, you know, we don't, you know, the, the capitalist system really doesn't have a lot of incentives to say do something that's good for everybody. It has incentives to say do something that makes a lot of money, right? And so how do we, you know, that's a, a very hard of our culture in terms of uh, companies. So, you know, where do you start with sort of changing that culture, not at a company level necessarily, I guess you could, but at a, at a market and a, a global level saying that, um, look, the fact that we've neglected these larger social issues like polluting cities and polluting our oceans and so forth, um, that is sort of an indication that capitalism has failed for everyone, um, you know, in terms of the conditions on the planet. You know, how, how do you how do you change that culture? I, I think culture is a Just very a little hard question. question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how long do you have, Brad? <laughs> I, I think culture is a hot thing to change, and one of the things we talk a lot about is take a look at who has the money. Whoever has the money has the power, and they are the one that controls policy. They are the ones that control where we go in the private market. They are the ones who control, for better or worse, where money gets funded and where it gets invested, right? And, and we all know this because, you know, look at who sits on the board of, of big companies. Look at who sits on the board of banks. So I think that will be the first place that we need to change. We need to change the, the power dynamics. We need to, that's why we stress a lot in, in having different voices in the things that we do, because the people that you serve and the people that create the solutions for those people that you serve, there it has to be a match. One, one of the things that a, a startup founder told us, and, and it resonated with me, and I use that example a lot, is it's very hard for you to create solutions to think about things when you have not lived it. Your lived experience guide a lot of your thinking and it guide a lot of the work that you do and what's passionate. So that's where we start. Yeah, and I would just say that you know you, you can't be what you can't see. And so from, you know, the venture capitalist who has never struggled really to yeah. the executive who's never struggled, this is, this is the challenge, I think, in company formation and in our system in general. We also have, I think, in the West, a different mentality, especially in the United States, where it's a wild, wild West of, you know, I'm going to succeed because I'm working hard. Right. It's almost this, this, like an Olympic sport, right? If you win and someone else loses, that's okay. Yeah, I mean, won, the, right? the whole zero-sum game, you know, this whole Horatio Alger-like mentality of, you know, bootstrapping from nothing to riches, um, it doesn't really help more than an, an individual. 
that that's that's part of the challenge, right? Well, that and it's been such a binary view. You know, how dare you criticize capitalism? That must mean you're an evil communist and you want to steal wealth from everybody and, you know, start a pogrom. (laughs) And uh, I, I think, I hope the tide is beginning to change. I had Judy Samuelson on the show from the Aspen Foundation uh, just a few weeks ago. And, you know, one of the things that we talked about was that the business roundtable about a year and a half ago made a major change uh, to their, their kind of um, their, their purpose of a corporation, right? Beyond just, uh, shareholders and return to shareholders. It was uh, about employees. It was about um, communities and and really thinking more broadly uh, across multiple stakeholders. Is this what you saw in the research for your book? I was very excited when that first came out. And I was very excited when um, the letter from, from Fink came out about the fact that we need to focus more um, on sustainability, we need to focus more on diversity and, and inclusion and all of the aspects of that. Unfortunately, I have to say that stories from recent days do not seem to reflect those words, right? Um, there has been no lack of stories, especially recently reported by Financial Times, about the challenges that that women face in BlackRock, about the challenges that minorities face yeah. in BlackRock. And, and it brings back to the point, right? It's change is hard. It co- goes back to the point culture change is hard, but it also means that it has to come from the top. Look at um, the announcement made by Jane Fraser lately, right? About the fact that Citibank is gonna go to a, to a uh, meeting free on Fridays. I, I would I would challenge that that change came about because she came on, and I would challenge that that change probably wouldn't have come about if she didn't come on board. That's fair, right? And and so that's why it has to go back to the top. It has to go back to the leadership, and the leadership has to have an incentive to change, and they also have to have the appreciation that change is needed. Otherwise, it's all empty promises and empty words. It sounds good to shareholders, but that's pretty much it. Yeah, the book focuses a lot on B corporations and sort of other ways to to look at um, a societal impact for the business model at hand. And and when you look at startups and you look at, you know, B Corps and you think, oh, well, that's all nice and all, you know, this business model works for smaller companies or it works for companies in particular industries like making ice cream or, you know, make, maybe making clothes or making coffee or whatever. It never could really apply to a big bank or a big insurance company or anything like that. Well, you know, that's hogwash, right? So we start the book at, we talk about large groups of underserved and we're just not talking about unbanked. We're not talking about underbanked. We're talking about financial um, service companies actually addressing the needs of women, uh, addressing the needs of um, gig workers or people in terms of the changes in the yeah. future of work and how they derive income. Um, talking about you know how small businesses are still really anemically served by financial services when they're solo entrepreneurs or small, small businesses. Um, we talk about people of color. We talk about you know LGBTQ in terms of you know neo banks now that are starting to address different needs, and that's the challenge, right? You could do well by doing good, and you could actually expand your market by simply changing the business model to serve more people than this sort of one to ten percent and primarily white dominated male you know sort of pieces of your base. It's 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 ridiculous that we just don't think differently like system leaders. Hmm. But I think it's uh, I think it's even more than that. It's like um, 
I, I think the the pendulum is swinging back to more collectivism, you know, more, uh, you know, looking at groups of people and how we, you know, we we interact and how we have common issues. So, you know, the climate is a very good example of that, right? Um, how do we get people incentivized to fix this as a problem when, you know, it's not necessarily efficient from a capitalist perspective, um, but it, A, it's the right thing to do and, and B, it will solve us trillions of dollars in the future the sooner we do it. Um, so, you know, there is long-term economic sense, but we, we don't have that sort of long-term planning and, and things like that. I know I'm going off on a tangent, but if you were saying going to the market and, and, and say talking to the stock market and the stock market was we're prepared to put in different metrics apart from a share price, as an example, what would those metrics you think be that measure our our goodness as a collective? That is a very interesting question. We actually recently talked to uh, Kurtz uh, from Top Bank and he said something that I think it, it, it was is something that sounds so simple, but yet we don't think about. Um, his response to a similar question that you just asked is, how well do you sleep at night? Now, that's not really a, a, a metric metric, if, if you will, that goes back to the Wall Street, but it goes back to the fundamentals, right? And it goes back to, to what you just said, Brad, about long-term um, and about short-termism, which is a prevalent challenge that we had, which I think is, is, part of, is part of the problem. CEOs and leaders get measured by quarterly results. Right. They get dinged if they don't achieve a certain target and the target is profitability. So everything goes back to the bottom line. And even if you want to look at, for example, emerging technologies, such as what you like to talk about, AI, artificial intelligence, a lot of the deployment of AI technology goes into how well can we improve the operations of a financial corporation? Banks use it to, to improve their margins, to improve the process, to optimize what they're doing, but not as much as looking at how do they use that technology to improve consumer financial well-being. They don't use it to think about, well, instead of us offering yet alone for a debt problem that they have, right, Brad, that we talked about last week. How can we use technology to help them better understand where they are right now and help consumers find out what they can do to improve their long-term financial well-being? Same with older adults. That's one of the segments that we talk about in the book, right? You can look at the problem as a everyone is getting older and banks don't really have much that they can make quote unquote, of, of a population that is getting older and, you know, not going to be here for, for too long. But then if you flip it, you can look at it as an opportunity for you to create intergenerational solutions to, you know, how do you use that as a way to include different family members to attract different generations of the people that you're trying to serve for credit union and whatnot. And how can you use that to go beyond good and create better outcomes for more people? Well, what's an example that you've seen who's doing this well? One of the, the companies that we highlighted in the book is Sunrise Banks uh, out of Minnesota. And this is a family-owned bank that is focused on their community and focused on the immigrant community that is 
sort of relocated and uh, immigrated into Minnesota. And these are, you know, multi-billion dollar financial institutions that have really changed um, their business model to become a B Corp. And it allows us to really rethink what banks can do to serve our communities. Well, what are some examples of some companies that are doing it right that you're seeing in your book? So one of my favorite examples is Sunrise Banks. Um, they're a certified B Corp headquartered in St. Paul, Minnesota. And uh, B Corp essentially, if you boil down to it, is, is a community of leaders, if you will. And they're certified um, as a kind of business that balances purpose and profit. Right. And so legally, I, I believe that they're required to think about what decisions they're making and the impact of it. And it impacts if you think about the, the larger circle, not just shareholders, but also the workers and the suppliers and communities, the entire um, ecosystem. And, and the reason why, why we love Sunrise Bank, an example, and thank you for the to David Reiling, who um, actually highlighted his, his very personal and inspirational story in the book. It is you have to look at where the bank started, right? And and he talked about the journey when he bought the bank with his father. And he talked about where the bank sits right now. They serve as communities and they look at the financial health of the people. They look at immigrant communities, typically the, the people that we don't typically think about, right, in financial services. And some of the practices has led to more than half of their employee being females. 30% of them are minorities. So, and, and they are a profitable entity. And, and we love his story because he is the perfect example on how it can be done. And it can be done with a purpose and with profit. And another one that I would add on top of that is Aspiration Bank. You know, Andre Cherney came out of politics and, you know, decided based on his experience in the Obama administration that there isn't, you know, a even playing field financially for people. And so he he approaches um, the leadership at Aspiration to make people think a little bit differently about, you know, their actions and their transactions and what that means to things like climate change. And so imagine if every single bank in the world all of a sudden let you know you know, how every single transaction that you make and every single company that they invest in, how the climate impact really was changing and impacting, you know, the, the rest of the activities that we're part of. And so that's what's fascinating to me is that these banks that are getting plenty of funding, that are getting plenty of scale, have different pieces of their business model that truly have a positive impact on our environment and, you know, have a way for us to kind of rethink the, the core value of what we give back to the communities in which we are privileged to serve. Another one really quick is um, a company that we highlight, Stuvo, which we work with. And Stuvo focuses on improving the income situation of people that find themselves in gig work or temporary work. And, you know, it's, it's important for more of these type of businesses to become the norm. So that, you know, banks and other types of, you know, businesses that are focused on extraction, you know, are focused on actually adding to the value of people's lives. And that's exactly what um, we need to get part of. You, you mentioned the uh, the whole gig economy um, situation. We've had some recent developments on that front with London, um, you know, d or, uh, basically determining that Uber um, couldn't have uh, contract workers that have to be employees. From your perspective, um, you know, we you mentioned earlier, Theo, 
um, about the frontline workers and the, the service workers and so forth. We, we've got this big gigging, gigging economy emerging. How does that play into it, um, both from a positive and negative uh, side in respect to opportunities for for gigging workers and, you know, because I know you would go into that in some, some extent in the book. Yeah, we did. Um, so gig economy worker is one big theme that we had in the book. And the reason why it was is interesting is twofold. One is it's termed as the future of work, if you will, um, where corporations sell it to people. It gives you flexibility on where to work and when to work, et cetera. Um, and it's also a growing trend for older adults as well, majority women who decide that, you know, that is something that they have to do to maintain their long-term economic uh, well-being. So if, if you look at, if you look at, and I like your example on, on how London is handling it versus how the U.S. is handling, I think that we need better protection for the workers. And for that is, as much as we can sell them on the benefits of, of, of gig work, the fact of the matter is corporations are shifting the risks to the workers. They are the ones who are working when work is available, which means that their income is uneven. They are the ones who have to benefit, who have to bear the lack of benefits, the lack of retirement funding and all of that. And we know that is a growing issue in the United States, especially since we do not have the concept of pension. And so security is pretty much worse than a cheesecloth. And if we look at people living longer and without the access to a safety net, what are we going to do, right? And and so people ended up working gig work, but then they don't have the protection. So I think in multiple fronts, we need to think about how do we give them better protection? How do we get them to pay that they are worth a living working wage? wage? And on top of it, how to how do we balance the risks that the workers are bearing versus the profits that companies are making so so what i would add to that is that you know in in california here just a few months back um, companies like uber and doordash and others actually defeated a proposition spending hundreds of billions or sorry hundreds of millions of dollars um, the the most spent to defeat a proposition, which was going to make gig workers actual employees of these businesses, and and that's the challenge that we have, right? With with businesses that are fueled by venture funds or businesses that have been around for a long time, sort of fighting against the best interest of their customers, of their users, and of the people that actually in in are making them these profits. And so, how else via policy can we actually bridge people's income? How else can we protect these workers. I mean, I, I know you write an awful lot about, you know, UBI and other things, and you've got this great book coming out yourself soon. Um, you know, what, what can we do, you know, when, when capitalism fails and when business fails? What's next? Well, I, I guess it gets back to sort of the core question. What is the purpose of the economy if it isn't to look after the citizens? I mean, you know, if I ask an economist what's the purpose of the economy, they'll say economic growth. But if you think about the role that money and the economy should have in the lives of humans as a species, it should be there to serve us. Not, a, not 1% of us or 10% of us, all of us. First and foremost, that's the economy should make sure we're looked after. I mean, is that... Is that a communistic view of the world? I don't know, you know. 
Yeah, I, I think um, it's it's a long term view. I mean, I, I think you can have economic self interest, but also think long term. That not just what do I need today, tomorrow, this quarter, but you know what is going to be good for me right, for and grandkids. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, I think the the principal argument in the book is that there are trillions upon trillions of dollars of opportunities to actually serve more people well. And it, it really does take um, a change in the way that we lead these organizations. And it does take, you know, again, systems leadership to really understand how we are all part of this large organism. And uh, the long term of it is if we want to survive, we got to start working together much better than we were doing today. Well, Amen, but, but, but doesn't that include not just um, some CEOs deciding to do something different? I mean, do we need public policy changes to really make this happen? Absolutely. I, I would I would challenge that as much as many CEOs who are very well off and coming out and saying, oh, I'm donating X number of dollars to a specific cause. My question would be, how have you been able to accumulate so much wealth when there is so much hardship in our society? Is there something that we need to change from a tax perspective? Is there something we need to change from a policy perspective, right? So I'll give you an example. Bezos, right? And I hate to keep picking on Amazon, but Bezos, he could personally pay every single one of his Amazon worker which there are over 870,000 of them. It, he could pay each one of them a one-time bonus of $100,000, and he would still be just as wealthy as he was a few months ago, just a few months. At the same time, when we have so many workers that are displaced, at the same time, when workers are trying to unionize, at the same time, when one in four working women are thinking about leaving the workforce because we're struggling to balance between work and Childcare. Well, and the so, irony of it is, th there's no doubt that Jeff Bezos understands long-term thinking. He was famous for telling Wall Street that, "Look, we're not going to make a profit. We can make a profit any day we want, but we're reinvesting in the business. Well, why not reinvest in, you know, not just growing the business, but I mean, investing in our people and our communities and people? He, he's mm -hmm. got to know that it's a matter of." years before automation dramatically changes the workforce at Amazon. And, you know, at, at that point, he's going to face some pretty significant um, attention, you know, um, in respect to his policy internally for the company, I think, and, and how he deals with that. So, um, you know, I think um, maybe maybe there's, there's an issue there in that... Um, yeah, he's not already doing that, but who do, who do you think are good examples of, uh, you know, are there good billionaires, Theo? Are there, you know, like Musk is trying to make us a multi-planetary species. You can't argue that isn't long-term thinking. <laughs> I, I, um, I think one of our favorite examples is Microsoft, right? If you look at how they have been conducting business, if you look at, because we like to pick on big techs, right? The big techs of the West, you know, they amass so much information about as they amass so much power, data as power. Um, how can you use that to, go, to do good? Can you actually use it ethically? And can you use that to put it back into society? I, I think, I think um, Bill Gates, the Gates Foundation, Melinda Gates and, and all of that, and how they lead by example, 
that's how you do it. And it can be done. Yeah, we talk we talk an awful lot about food, water, and shelter. And you know, when I first heard that the Gates Foundation was actually working to you know get more people fresh water, and uh, we we have a lot of highlights about what they're doing to expand broadband. And so, you know, of of the billionaires of the world, um, you know, he was the first to commit to give his his yeah. his fortune away. And so, if Musk uh, ever you know actually stopped playing with rockets and stopped playing with um, making men on Mars, um, then maybe we'll get somewhere. But we need rocket builders, you know. No, I, you know, I, I love rocket I mean, builders, but, you know. Yeah, you need to inspire people as well as, you know, making sure they've got a blanket and, you know, a roof over their head. and Fresh anyway, water. Yeah, yeah and fresh water and, you know, good sanitation. The, the Bill Gates connection he made when I, I watched the Netflix uh, documentary on this, the connections he made in respect to um, toilets and how sanitation was really critical. Just the, the the sort of systemic thinking this guy's able to put to to these problems, really intriguing, uh, wonderful uh, in, in, in that respect. So, hey, listen, guys, I, you know, I'm conscious of the time. We're running up against the clock here. So um, let me just ask you uh, very quickly, where can people find the book? We can go to beyondgoodbook.com. That's where you can find out more about where to get the book and also the reviews for some of our friends on the book and also where we will be next. Fantastic. Well, all the best. Um, I hope it's a massive success for you guys and uh, you become, uh, you know, famous overnight from it or whatever, whatever you want from it. But uh, great stuff. Hi, my name is Dara Tarkowski. I'm the host of the Tech on Reg podcast at Provoke.fm. Tech on Reg explores all things at the intersection of law, technology, and highly regulated industry. We're talking about fintech and reg tech, cannabis and sex tech. Join me and thought leaders from around the world to discuss how to pursue responsible innovation. Welcome to Breaking Banks. Today we have Aaron McCreary, climate fintech lead with New Energy Nexus. And so, Aaron, most people know what fintech is, at least listening to this podcast. Most people are aware of what the climate is. What is climate fintech? Hey, Jason, and thanks for having me. It's a uh, it's a good question and an understandable question. And the way I like to answer it is by saying climate fintech is simply digital financial technology catalyzing decarbonization. It's a mouthful, but simple enough. So, I mean, let's talk about decarbonization then, right? Like what's the connection between financial technology and decarbonization? Like how is financial technology driving carbonization is maybe like the starting point there? Sure. So as you've probably seen over the last year, there's been this sort of obsession with carbon and that carries into net zero commitments. And those commitments are being made by governments uh, at the top through policy. And that is affecting the obligations and the expectations around financial stakeholders. And so banks, asset management firms are now looking at the different operations they have and thinking about how to decarbonize them. Mm. And so building on that for a second, when you look at, you know, forget financial technology, look more broadly at banking, in what role has financial services been playing in this? And are you seeing the same move like within the, the incumbents 
that they're thinking about decarbonization? Yeah, you know, the incumbents have a, a long history of financing fossil fuels and um, are, are having sort of a, a moment of reconciliation with that and, mm -hmm. and trying to find ways to transition. At the same time, you've got this influx of neobanks and fintech solutions, which don't have this intertwined history of 30, 40, 100 years with fossil fuels. And so they're able to come onto the scene free and clear and offer the same services without the dirty mixture of, uh, of and conflict of interest. Got it. So talk to us about, you know, what is the new energy nexus? Well, New Energy Nexus is a organization that supports clean energy entrepreneurship with funds, accelerators, and networks. Uh, we started in California as the California Clean Energy Fund, and actually were early supporters of Tesla around the time Elon joined. Uh, and uh, over the last few years, we've grown. We've got programming in about 10 countries today. Oh, fantastic. And so where does the investment come from? Is it, when it moved from being, you know, the California clean energy, is it private investors? Is this something others are open to primarily uh, government? Yeah, there's, there's sort of a combination of government and philanthropic regranting that we do through these programs. We okay. also have um, some fund structures where we are, are leveraging CVC, participation and, and other normal angel and, and LP investors. So, um, but but New Energy Nexus is a nonprofit. Okay. And how do you guys measure success then? You know, it, is it financial return? Do you think of it as an investment more than a grant when you're doing it? You know, what are the metrics you put around it? Yeah, we really try to uh, support and accelerate as many entrepreneurs as possible. Now, the sort of quantity approach to innovation in this space has been really important, but it, you know, I don't want it to take away from, from the quality. And when you talk about the combination of climate and fintech, I think there are some specific metrics which um, become more relevant. So certainly uh, metric tons of, of CO2 removed from a uh, a tool or solution or plugin, but also how much capital is being moved from point A to point B with a climate underlay. And I think that is really what has exploded in the last year is this massive shift in capital. Some people point to sort of ESG investment, but in general, just the, the sort of groundswell of capital flows to financing either electrification, resource efficiency, um, battery storage, and a lot of other uh, solutions in that in that vein. Interesting. So one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show is you and Brett were preparing uh, for part of a panel on the Global Alliance of Banking on Values. And you know, the folks over at Sunrise Banks sent over like, oh, there's this really interesting climate fintech report that's like right up your alley. It's talking about the emerging ecosystem of climate capital catalysts. I'm like, the title alone is fascinating. And then, you know, the report itself was even more fascinating. I'd love to have you share just some of the key themes that emerged uh, from that report. 
Yeah, thanks. Um, I, I, I laugh at, at the title just because I think I, it was a little overkill on the alliteration. But uh, it just I rolls off it, the tongue, really. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, we, we tried to break down the financial system into business units so that you could sort of think about solutions and tools that can play a role in each of them. And just to name a few, you know, we start off with uh, payments, then we talk about banking, then we talk about equity investing, then we talk about debt lending, and it, and it goes on and on. And so within each of those chapters, we talk about various uh, new players, solutions, innovations that can have a real impact on the business of, of finance. Hmm. Well, in... I love how you break it down into those categories. And so before we go any further, where can people find a copy of the report? Yeah, if you just type in the Google, the climate fintech report should be should be up at the top, I hope. <laughs> so people don't and need to remember climate capital catalysts? No, no, none of that nonsense. Um, and uh, it's 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 free to download and, and, and uh, you know, encourage everyone to to take a look. So when you think of those various themes you just outlined, you know, personally for you, both in the near and the long term, um, where do you see the greatest leverage that we can have an impact? Yeah, you know, there's a few areas that are really starting to catch fire. And I, I want to sort of go back to this idea of um, top-down impact as well as bottom-up. Top-down being these massive... Uh, asset owners, investors, uh, who are now obligated to make changes. And a lot of what is driving that is, is data. So data that's being sourced through what's called uh, geospatial means using uh, satellites and sensors. And then the ability to take that data and derive insights from it to make yep. decisions. So you know, if you were able to to gauge uh, the flood risk of a, a low-lying portfolio of real estate, you might not want to invest in that, right? Um, and then on the other spectrum is you and me and other uh, average citizens out there who are starting to care and pay attention to uh, climate change. And they're starting to vote with their dollars in, in real tangible ways. Uh, there's a really interesting study that came out of uh, uh, Bloomberg where there's almost a 10% differential in people under the age of 18 who think that climate change is a huge crisis. So there's all this sort of Gen Z potential as they're becoming financially literate, as they're saving, as they're spending, as they're investing, and so tools that give them the opportunity to do so in a way that's climate friendly are starting to see real traction. Well, and I don't think anyone would accuse him of being Gen Z, but you know, when Larry Fink, CEO of BlackRock, you know, says this is important and not only poses an existential threat, people start to pay attention. 
And then, you know, last year we had actually just about this time, uh, maybe a little bit later, I remember because I was quarantining in a house after some COVID exposure that had Jacqueline Jackson uh, from SP Global's True Cost Division sharing, you know, what they found around ESG and how it actually outperforms. Um, Yeah. in that availability of data drives so much change. Absolutely. I mean, I think part of the boost in the last year has also just been economic. Uh, ESG funds outperformed. Solar became significantly cheaper as a way to, to produce electricity than coal. And so even if you know, you're not um, the foremost concerned person about climate change, some of these decisions are, are simple math now. Yeah. Um, you know, so there's an amazing example out of China, um, ant forest, which is a is a, uh, appli- a payments and spending application that over 400 million people use on a daily basis, and that has gamified carbon offsetting and sequestration on a scale which is now having a real environmental impact. Uh, hundreds of millions of trees are being planted, and the average Chinese consumer is now somewhat aware of mm. this relationship. Now, you know, on the flip side of this, where you see the huge opportunity, where are the big kind of challenges, right? So if market forces are have kind of kicked in and that flywheel's moving, and it, I don't want to say it's taken care of, but it, it actually has leverage. What are the pieces that are still stuck that you know you look at and say, unless we can overcome this um, obstacle, it's just going to be more and more difficult? Yeah, I think there's still a problem around taxonomy, using the same frameworks from one country to another. Hmm. Um, the U.S. is still quite behind Europe in this regard. Um, I'll give you an example. In, in Europe this week, they're now... Uh, implementing greenwashing, quote-unquote, penalties for funds that describe themselves as sustainable but are not. Whereas in the States, we're just commissioning within the SEC a working group to start to talk about this. So you see that there's sort of this lag time between the two regions, and we're playing a a little bit of a catch-up game um, but you know the the innovation engine that that is the states is is not to be underestimated and and there's quite a bit of activity now. Well, and what do you think? You know, there's a change in administration, but even the regulators prior um, to the change had been you know pushing and saying you know climate change and banking that you know banks do need to pay attention to this and starting to have the conversation. You know, what do you think the future holds over the next you know, three to four years here? Yeah, I think there will be um, pressure on the banks in the middle, so to speak. You know, We were talking about the asset owners on the top and, and the consumers on the bottom, and the banks are sort of in the middle, sort of getting squeezed a little bit. And if you start to see meaningful customer acquisition by a neobank, say, aspiration, uh, who's offering offsetting, you know, card services and investment connectivity. If a Bank of America starts to lose customers to uh, a competitor like that, 
it's going to rapidly increase the changes they start to make on their interfaces and the products and services that they start to offer. Um, and that that is all sort of in tandem with the obligation they now have to decarbonize by 2050 or 2040 or whatever the year is that they've they've sort of set out as a goal. Do you feel like without that kind of the threat of the new entrants using it as a wedge, we would see this kind of change? Or is that market force sufficient that we talked about that in, investors care about it? And it- yeah, I think it it is accelerated when you're when you're getting the messaging both from the top and the bottom. And so that's good. Do I think the change would happen with bulge? bracket banks if there wasn't pressure from the consumer less less so less less rapidly and i think um it becomes even more so an economic question you know is this really uh going to make more money than financing fossil fuel projects right yep um and and so i think the other consideration of course is just the planet changing and the the sort of um, exacerbation of risk on various assets and various um, positions. And so if you can now draw a pretty clear connection between fossil fuel output and negative impacts to your low-lying coastal real estate, it's going to suddenly be less attractive to finance those projects and insure those projects. And you're really starting to see a shift of, of um, sentiment in, in the financing community around whether those projects are the right thing and the cost of capital for those projects as a result are going up. Yeah. So, I mean, let's play this out because the argument in the one that I find frustrating is, you know, on a level playing field is you have countries that are less well-developed that said, hey, you first world countries, you're the one who made the mess because you've been burning cheap sources of energy forever to go do these things. And that's why we got into this mess in the first place. And then on the flip side, you have, you know, the first world company er, saying, well, you know, if China is going to be, you know, playing the game or another third world company country is going to be doing a whole lot of burning fossil fuels, you know, that's not fair, even though we did it for years, that's going to make us uncompetitive. How do you solve that conundrum? That's a great question. And I think- Do you do you buy that argument or is you no, know, that really no, a false- I, Yeah, I think it's a false equivalency. And I, and I, and I think that um, you know, one silver lining for uh, emerging markets is that they are not as uh, entrenched in existing infrastructure. And so there's an opportunity to sort of leapfrog uh, the mistakes that have been made in our infrastructure mm-hmm. and go straight into, um, you know, renewable microgrids and digital payments. I mean, you know, who needs a wallet anymore, right? Um, and I think there's there, that sort of fixation here in the States is just not something that um, has to be has to be normalized in other places still still figuring it out. Yeah. 
Well, and I think that you know, you drop you know this is again the entrenched first mover actually works against you, right? We talk about that on the show all the time when it relates to payments around those that, hey, you know, ACH was phenomenal when it started and we're awfully used to using it, but the rest of the world actually can settle payments a lot faster than we can, right? And same on trade, but the same, you know, that does extend, right? There's a really good analogy between the financial technology and the climate issues related to it. Totally. And, and there's sort of like a symbiotic, you know, mutually beneficial relationship between the two. You know, some of these digital technologies, uh, you know, of course, artificial intelligence is is a dominating topic right now, but there's just such useful application for it in uh making decisions about how the planet is changing and then how to invest accordingly. Um, and so you're seeing a ton of acquisition activity now in, in the ESG data space and um, the climate risk analysis space. And it's, it's really encouraging to see that those tools are now going to be used to move money in, in the right directions. Yeah. So as we wrap up, you know, you have a very wide view, you know, both globally and the breadth of financial technology. If you were an entrepreneur or an entrepreneur within, you know, a larger organization, where are the gaps that you say there isn't enough innovation happening in, you know, this sector, this space, this piece of it, that there's a real opportunity um, that they should go after? Yeah, it's a good question. I think, um, Definitely still a big opportunity around sustainable e-commerce, especially in the States. You know, we're um, legendary consumers. And I think there's a, an opportunity there for us to be further educated and incentivized to spend our money in a certain way. Um, you know, there's so many rewards and points rerouting systems and incentives that could be trimmed in ways that that have a real material impact on on the planet. Um, so I, I definitely encourage innovation in that space. And I say this also because for every climate fintech company that there is in the states, there's two in Europe. There's there's just a lot more um, catch up that we need to do here. Do I think we will catch up? One hundred percent. But there's some some noticeable sort of trends to to look at over in Europe and see which one of those are applicable in the states. Um, another area, of course, is is carbon markets. There's the mandatory markets, and then there's the voluntary. And so many corporates are now, you know, having this competition with each other. Oh, we're going to be net zero by. 2035. No, we're gonna, you know, be net zero by 2032. And it's this ridiculous. is a race to the bottom. I can approve of, by the way. It, right. I mean, you know, usually it's like, you know, you want to pull your hair out. Um, and and frankly, it is a little bit ridiculous still, but it's good. And so just sort of making sure that these um, carbon offsets are are really carbon offsets and yeah. you know they're not being double counted um the, there isn't you know sort of greenwashing happening and that also a, a, a good number of the offsets are actually the production of renewable energy 
You know, we don't want to get caught in, in, in a tree planting uh, cycle that isn't yielding the, the infrastructure that we need at the same time. Interesting. So a little bit of that greenwashing, right? It's the, you know, the kind of green paint we throw on top of it to say, but look at all the trees we planted, but we didn't really fix the engine underneath that was causing the problem in the first place. That's right. You know, I think, um, again, the states will take a, a little bit of time to sort of clarify the rules and the norms there. But I think there's a ton of energy around it now. And I'm, I'm really encouraged by, by some of the, the innovations that are out there. So question because you brought it up, and maybe you don't know the answer to this, but you know this is my tree-hugging guilt that I get, and my wife can verify <laughs> for everyone who cares. This is not a new thing for me. You know, it's taken her 15 years to accept that I'm upset when she buys single-use bottles, not because she's wasting money, but because she's polluting the planet. Um, right. How bad is the e-commerce problem, right? Because it's so easy, you know, especially with embedded finance, to you know push the button. And, you know, we're getting things delivered piecemeal that before, you know, would have been a trip to the store. But yeah, the trip to the store means I had to drive there. You know, the store itself has a carbon footprint. You know, yes, I'm bundling things, but they had to get there on a truck in the first place. You know, an opinion either way, even if it's only just a better informed one than I have. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm not an expert either. You know, I can say, generally speaking, that um, supply chains like that are, are a hot mess. And there's a lot of um, technologies that can help that along the way. If, you know, if, the, if the Amazon truck is powered by batteries, that's, that's a start. You know, if, the, if the Amazon box is cardboard recycled, that's a, you know, another step in the right direction. Um, you know, I, I think a little more tangential, I know the fashion industry historically is a very um, carbon intensive industry and has a lot of work to do. And so I think some some great um, innovations in that space could have a real impact too. Great. Well, Aaron, thank you for joining us. We will have for anyone interested in the show notes and on the site, a copy you know, to the report if you don't wanna you know, be go Googling for climate FinTech report. Um, if people want to learn more about this broader movement, where do you? What are your go-to sources to read about? You know, climate fintech. Yeah, um, I mean, I think what I actually would want to do is maybe shout out a few of the the players in the space. You know, just if you're looking for banking alternatives or card alternatives. Um, Ladies and gentlemen, Aaron McCreary's greatest hits of climate fintech. <laughs> Um, yeah, take a look at, at Atmos Bank, Aspiration Bank. Uh, there's a cool credit card coming out called Carbon Zero. Um, if you're looking for some sort of retirement or investment assistance, there's a nice solution called Carbon Collective. Um, and, you know, I, I think there's, there's some... Uh, opportunity there with one called Accountable. Hmm. If you want to offset just your daily um, impact and, and sort of uh, donate to various projects in the global south, there's um, a platform called REN, W-R-E-N. There's tons of them out there. Um, and I'm, I'm really excited because I think there's, there's going to be a lot more by the end of this year.
Well, actually, before we close out, I should bring up, you're going to be helping seed a lot more of those. Can you talk for you know, a quick minute about what you guys are launching uh, around an accelerator? Yeah, uh, we, we actually just announced last week we're uh, supporting um, the first cohort in Europe uh, with a, a fintech accelerator there called F10. Um, so we're actually already looking at the, the applications as we speak. Um, and then we are going to be rolling out a dedicated program in uh, the U.S. towards the end of this year. Um, and so if you're a climate fintech startup, if you're a VC investor interested in the space, if you're a corporate who wants to solve some of these issues from within, um, feel free to reach out. Fantastic. Again, Aaron McCreary, thank you for joining us. Uh, excited to see the impact that climate fintech can really have. Awesome. Thank you, Jason. That's it for this week. If you like the show, make sure to give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform or share it with a friend or share it on social media. We'll see you again next week with more Breaking Banks.